Matthew 28, verse 18, our Lord Jesus Christ is risen. He appears to his disciples. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we ask you here uh, another Sunday morning as we are gathered together, we ask you once again to open your word to us and open our hearts to your word. May your spirit be illuminating the riches and the treasure of scripture to us. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. Give us faith and a willing heart as we look into your word this morning. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Our Lord is a beautiful artist or an artist of beautiful paintings. He is the supreme artist of all time. Uh, just this morning, as he's waking up, looking out the window, the sun was barely rising, just the first rays of the morning. The sky was turning from pitch black to a deep purple. The trees were still hidden from the light, and they just had this blackness to them, but you could see the outline with the branches poking every which way and the individual leaves against the backdrop of that brightening purple. And as you look at something like that, it is better than any art museum, better than any sculpture. It's a living picture and it displays the greatness of our God, His creativity, His beauty, His power. Pretty much everywhere we look in this world, we see something of his greatness, something of his might. In fact, it tells us in Romans chapter 1 that we look at creation and it displays his power to us, his eternal attributes. And we learn something from our God as we look into this world. Even as we look around this room or as we go to a grocery store or any public place and you see the face of another human being, you are looking at somebody who has been made In the image of God, you see somebody who bears his image and you see God's creativity in them and in humanity in general as humanity puts on display great acts of creativity in the roads that we build and the structures that we invent and the art that we do. And all of that is really just a reflection in some pale way of the greatness of our God and the display of his power. And so God has put into our world all of these pictures of his greatness, of his power, of his might, and of his eternal attributes. You look at some animals and you get a sense of God's humor. If you look at something like a duckbill platypus, you can't help from laughing. And God has these great displays of his attributes just by looking in the world that he has made. But where would you look 
for a picture of his redemptive power. When you look at creation, you see something of his creative power, something of the might that he has over all of creation, something of his eternality. But where would you look for a picture that displays his redemptive power? You don't look at a kangaroo and think, my, God is wonderful to save. You don't even look at a tree and think that. You might think God is creative, God is powerful, but what picture do you look at to see his forgiveness of sins, to see his saving grace? Where do you see pictures of that? Our Lord has left his church two powerful pictures of his saving gospel. That's baptism and communion. We look at these as pictures or as symbols of God's saving grace. Baptism and communion are clear marks or clear responsibilities of the church. They are there for us to display in picture form the gospel. Because you don't see the gospel in the sky or in the stars or in the trees or in the animals But God has put for us pictures in his church that remind us, a living picture of his gospel. We've been spending the last few weeks unpacking some ideas about what is essential to a church. We've discussed how the church is the household of God, how it is the church of the living God, how it is the pillar and buttress of the truth. We've seen how Jesus Christ evaluates his church to see whether it compromises with the world or whether it holds out the testimony of the gospel to the world. I want to spend, Lord willing, this week and next week considering these two pictures that God has given to his church to really show us what the church is to be about. Baptism and communion. This morning want to show that God has given his church baptism to picture the gospel and to practically show sinners that their sins are washed away through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me offer to you a lengthy definition of baptism to start. Baptism is a symbolic act of immersing in water a person who has repented and believed the gospel. Baptism represents cleansing from sin through the death and resurrection of Christ and identifies the repentant and confessing sinner with the triune God. I told you that was a long definition. Yesterday, we had um, a baptism service. It was a wonderful time. The baptism itself probably took about 10 seconds. Um, We hung around for a couple of hours because it is such a wonderful moment to reflect on what, what God does for sinners. That baptism consisted of this. Although there are some periphery, there are some songs and a brief message, the essence of it was going into water with somebody who has professed Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior, 
somebody who has repented of their sins, acknowledging that they were dead in their sins and lost, and that Jesus Christ has come to save them. And as they publicly acknowledge this reality, that they have trusted in Jesus Christ, they go down into the water, and there they are laid down into the water as though they are being put into a tomb. And there the water washes over them, and they come up out of the water, cleansed by the water of physical dirt, but more so picturing that through Jesus Christ, they have been given new life in Christ. It's a wonderful living picture of the gospel. We need to understand this important picture that God has given to his church. And before we dig into this anymore, I just want to say, and this probably goes without, should go without saying for just about any message that is given here, that I am very reliant on being taught from other people. I don't come up with this stuff on my own. Uh, and so if you find something that's wrong, you don't blame me, blame the people who taught me. No, that's not true. It's all, it's all my fault. Uh, but I just want to point out to you a couple of books that have been helpful to me this week as I've thought about baptism. A book by Edmund Clowney called The Church, Robert Duncan Culver's Systematic Theology, and Robert Sosie's book, The Church and God's Program. I don't want to say that at the start because I will refer to what they have taught me much, but not always give them the credit as we go through this. Baptism is sometimes called a sacrament. Some of you might have no problem with that, or some might shudder at that idea to call something a sacrament. Sometimes communion is called a sacrament. Sacrament comes from the Latin sacramentum, and it basically means, as it sounds like, anything that's sacred or consecrated. And in that sense, there's nothing wrong with calling baptism and communion a sacrament because it is a sacred time. Hopefully, you take baths once in a while or showers once in a while. Those aren't all that sacred. But the washing of baptism is a sacred moment. There's something distinct about that. We have meals three times a day. They're not all that sacred. We can do them to the glory of God, but there is one time when the church gathers for communion, and that is a sacred moment. There's something distinct and unique about it something holy unto the Lord about it. And so it's okay to call these things a sacrament. But there is a big divide between Protestants and Catholics over these items of baptism and communion. There's different perspectives on them with ev even within Protestantism. I don't intend to enter into the fray of debate on that. I'll just present to you generally what I see the Scripture teaching but just to make one clarification about what baptism is not, I do use a point of reference with the Catholic Church on this. In Catholicism, communion would be something that would confer grace onto the recipient of baptism. It is indicating that sins are actually washed away through the very act of baptism. There's something called ex opere operato, which is a Latin expression that means by the work worked. 
and quoting from a Catholic scholar, refers to the fact that the sacraments confer grace when the sign is validly affected, not as the result of activity on the part of the recipient, but by the power and promise of God. That is to say that the very act of baptism validly received by the recipient does in fact confer grace onto that person in that moment. I would hold that the Bible would teach something else, that grace is not conferred in the act of baptism. The only way that anyone ever receives grace is by faith. That is the way that you receive it. You could turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verse 1. You are dead, in, and you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The whole text is about the grace of God towards dead sinners. Those who were dead in their trespasses have been given grace of God to make them alive in Christ Jesus, forgiven of their sins, all received by faith. Or Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 7, helps us to understand that the very washing away of our sins is not through some act that we perform or is performed on us in water, but is something done to us by the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 3 Verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's the Holy Spirit who applies to us the saving work of Jesus Christ, who washes us, who regenerates us, and that is received by us through faith, not through a ritual act. It's not to say that baptism is unimportant. 
Baptism is clearly important in the New Testament and in the life of the believer. And also, baptism is closely associated with the effects of saving faith. Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 38. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, after the men in Jerusalem have heard Peter preach the gospel and are convicted to the heart, they ask Peter, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There we see that repentance and forgiveness and baptism are all very closely related. But as we unpack this, the baptism is shown to be the picture and display of our faith, but not the very thing that brings the forgiveness or washing that we desire or receive through our faith. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it says, In him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Again, you see the connection of baptism and faith. Buried with Christ, pictured in baptism, raised with Christ, through faith in God's work. But faith is clearly what begins this, and baptism is what pictures it. If you look at Acts chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, we see Peter, the same one who told those men at Jerusalem to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, adds this in Acts 15, verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. By faith. And then is clearly pictured in baptism. Robert Sosi says, Christian baptism is conversion baptism. It formed... In the New Testament, the final act of the repentance, belief, baptism response to the gospel. Thus, although salvation is through faith, baptism as the expression of this faith was often joined to the reality. Baptism and faith are but the outside and inside of the same thing. For this reason, the gifts of faith are also those of baptism, for baptism is nothing but faith embodied in act. The relation between baptism and faith must never be construed, however, so as to make the right the faith which brings salvation. Rather, in every biblical example, the inward saving faith precedes baptism. End quote. So for those who have faith, you will find in Scripture they believe the gospel, they repent of their sins, and then as a display of their faith, they go and be baptized. We already looked at Matthew 28, but it is there where we find why this issue of baptism is just so important. 
It's because our Lord Jesus Christ Himself instituted it. He's the one who gave the command in Matthew 28, 18-20, to go into all the nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As disciples are made, as the gospel is proclaimed, and people believe, baptism is commanded by our Lord Jesus Christ. Eventually, the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth, and this act of baptism is to continue. So whether you're in New York, or you're in Australia, or Papua New Guinea, or Africa, or China, this act of baptism is to follow the preaching of the gospel and belief in Jesus Christ. Let's do a brief survey of the book of Acts to see how Jesus Christ had commanded his disciples to make disciples and to baptize them. And we'll see who is baptized and what this is accomplishing. We've already seen in Acts chapter 2 that Peter has preached the gospel. He's been preaching to men who were just a few weeks earlier calling out for the death of Jesus Christ by crucifixion. And now Peter preaches to them by the power of the Holy Spirit that that same one that they crucified has been raised to life by God the Father. And so these people who have called out for Jesus' death are now being told that that one that they told or called out to die is now really alive, not just alive because of some sort of medicine work, but because of the very act of God. And if you're in their shoes, you might be a little bit afraid because the one that you wanted dead, not only did he die, but he came back to life again, presumably not able to die again. And what might he do to his enemies? And so they're cut to the heart over what they have done because not only have they crucified a man, they've crucified the Messiah, the Christ. And so what should they do? And that's exactly what they ask. What should we do? You'd be at a loss, wouldn't you? What could you do on your own? You couldn't fix this predicament that you've put yourself into. You've called out for the murder of the Son of God. Who's going to help you now? You can't change this. And so they ask, what shall we do? And Peter has a gracious response. He says, repent and be baptized. In verse 38, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were told that they were to turn away from their sin. Their sin was effectively disowning Jesus as the Son of God and calling out from his death, for his death. They're to turn from that sin. Not only that, they're to be baptized. And when they're baptized, they're going to be baptized into the very name of the one that they had called out for his death. That means that they are going to now be identified by this crucified and risen one. Their whole life is changed. 
They're going to be identified with Jesus as they're plunged into the water and raised up again to show that their whole life is now consumed by this one man, Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. Those who received it were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Well, this is the church. Added to Christ's people. Those who belong to Jesus Christ. That's the church. And so you see how this works. The gospel is preached. Conviction comes. People repent of their sin. They're baptized into the name of Jesus. And they're added to those who belong to Christ. Baptism belongs to the church to show who has been added to the number belonging to Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 8. Verse 12. In Acts chapter 8, we find that there's been a persecution that has hit the church of Jerusalem and the disciples are scattered and Philip ends up in Samaria among a group of people who are despised by Jews, believed a heretical version of Judaism. And Philip preaches the gospel. In verse 12, it says, but, they believe, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Gospels preached, the gospel is received, and the people are baptized who've received it, both men and women, and these are Samaritans, and they are acknowledged by those apostles, Peter and John, that these are legitimate believers in Jesus Christ, and they now are also added to the church. There in chapter 8 and verse 36, you have Philip again meeting the Ethiopian eunuch who's coming back from Jerusalem, has a scroll in his chariot and is reading from Isaiah, and Philip explains the gospel to him. In chapter 8, verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. There you have this man who's heard the gospel, presumably believes it, desires to be baptized, which is to be identified with Jesus Christ. Now, that visible display of the gospel has been performed on that man. In chapter 9, verse 18, this is the conversion of Saul. 
the one who had been persecuting the church of Jesus Christ, and he's met Jesus on the road to Damascus, has been humbled and blinded, has been brought to a brother named Ananias, and Ananias speaks to him. In chapter 9, verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Look at chapter 22 of Acts, verse 16. This is Paul later recounting that incident. And he adds this. This is what Ananias said to Paul, And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. See there again that baptism illustrates this washing away of sins when you meet the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48, you've got Peter speaking to now Gentiles, Cornelius and his household. He's been summoned there by an angelic messenger to come, and Peter preaches to them the gospel of Jesus Christ in verse 44 of Acts 10. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone, anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now you have Gentiles who are also added to this church who have heard the gospel, received the Spirit, and are now baptized. I could go on through Acts and talk about Lydia and the jailer and Crispus and his household and John's disciples. But you get the picture. The gospel is preached. Sinners are convicted. The gospel is believed. Repentance happens. And you have people baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, identifying with him. This act of baptism, as I've been presenting it to you as a picture, is variously understood, even among brothers. Some of you may have been part of church traditions that have different ways of baptizing people. We have infant baptism, there's sprinkling, there's pouring, there's immersing. Again, my intent's not to get into the dynamics of the debate on that. Each one of those illustrations of pouring or of sprinkling carries some biblical imagery to it. The Holy Spirit is poured out onto believers. Blood was sprinkled on the Israelites in the Mosaic Covenant, but immersion best captures the imagery, and the definition of the word for the early church. The word baptize is just a, a Greek word, Englishized, Englishized, Anglicized, however you want to say it. Baptizo is the Greek word 
And then we just say baptism, like we're supposed to expect, like we know what it means. But words have definitions, and when you translate baptizo or the related words, baptisma or baptismas or bapto, if you look it up in a dictionary, it means to dip, immerse, dip oneself, to wash, to submerge, to dip in or under. The meaning of the word isn't all that misunderstood. It's just the application of it. It's used in Luke chapter 11, verse 38, not in the context of Christian baptism, but during a dinner, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. It's the same word that we use for baptism, but there it's clearly referring to some sort of hand washing where you dip your hands into water and wash them. So baptism has its connection to washing, but washing by immersion, by dipping under, by plunging in. Baptism is a Christian washing, most likely by immersion. That's the way the early church practiced it. That was the most common practice, even admitted by those who baptized infants, that the early church, the practice was probably universally immersion of believers. What's this? What's the background in the Old Testament to this washing? Maybe you could turn back to Exodus chapter 30. Verse 17. As the arrangements for the tabernacle are being made, the Lord gives instructions to Moses and it says in Exodus 30, verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations." Washing in that context is pretty significant. Aaron and his sons need to do it on their way into the tabernacle to offer sacrifices so that they wouldn't die. It was a ritual act that would show that they needed to be cleansed. You could do a study through the Old Testament and see that cleansing was very important to the Lord's people. They needed to be washed. But it would happen again and again where these washings needed to happen over and over again. Every time Aaron and his sons would have to go and make this offering, they'd have to go and wash themselves. The Israelites, in different contexts, would have to wash themselves repeatedly for different infractions of the law. Washing would happen again and again and again. It speaks to the fact that God needs clean people to come before him. But it kind of begs the question because does God really care 
about dirt on somebody's hands or dirt on their feet or dirt on their body? Does that really bother him? Or is this cleansing indicative of the fact that God needs some sort of deeper cleaning to happen in us? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8 and 10 says, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. When you come to Christian baptism, which is a Christian washing, it's a one-time event. We don't have the instruction that you need to go and be baptized again and again and again because you got dirty on the outside or even because you got dirty on the inside. It's a one-time washing, a one-time event a one-time pictorial representation of the gospel that saves you for all time. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We need a washing. And that washing happens in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know this has been a bit of a survey through some portions of Scripture, and we move fairly quickly, but pause for a moment and consider your own heart before our holy God. Your outside body may be clean or unclean, but consider your heart before the Lord, the God who made you, the God who owns you, the God who deserves complete and total obedience from you has demanded that you walk in his ways and that you be holy as he is holy. And as you walk through this life, you step into pools of mud all the time. Sins of selfishness and pride and lust and deceit. Complaining, bitterness, Anger, jealousy, wrath, enmity, conflict. And the list goes on for all the different mud piles that we step in all the time and we dirty our heart with our sin. And our God, 
who put that bronze laver in the front of his tabernacle to show that nobody can come to him unless they are clean, will not permit into his presence people who are defiled with sin. God says to his people Israel in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. You're instructed to wash yourselves, but as hard as you might try, whatever soap you might get, you cannot clean your heart of the evil deeds that it possesses. Just a few verses later in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. David was somebody who knew the sins of his heart. And he cries out in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. If you're in David's position and you realize the depths of your sin and you call out to a holy God for washing and cleansing, you may know that he has the power to do it, but you might wonder, how would he do this? How would he cleanse me of the sins of my heart, that guilt and that shame that I carry around with me that nobody else knows? How do I get clean? How does something reach that deep inside of me and cleanse me from that darkness that goes with me wherever I go? How do you get clean? It's not by going into water. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus came as the high priest who offers his body and his blood to take away the sin of the world. It says that every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. In all of our sin and all of our iniquity, we need to be washed away We need to have them washed away. But the only thing that will do that is not a bath in water, not even a Christian baptism in water. The only thing that does that is the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6. 
you turn there, this is our final text. Jesus Christ came, died on the cross, rose again in victory over sin and death. And he invites those who hear this gospel to put their full trust in him. And as you put your full trust in him, you are identified with him. And baptism now becomes a picture of what has happened to us, what we have received by faith. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We receive all of the blessings of God by faith. But when we come to Christian baptism, It shows in a powerful way this picture of what blessings God gives to us. As we're plunged into the water, it's as though we're plunged with Christ into that death that we deserve, but that he bore for us. And as we're raised out of the water, we're raised clean, not because of ourselves, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ that has washed us. And we're given new life to walk in so that we don't have to habitually walk in the darkness of our sins any longer. Baptism pictures that so beautifully and so powerfully. As we're baptized, we're baptized, as Jesus said in Matthew 28, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And don't miss this. That act, that ritual act of baptism is a naming ceremony for those who have repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. In that moment, it is as if heaven in a sense is declaring that that individual who has been brought out of darkness into light now bears the name of the triune God over their life so that they've been adopted into the family of God with God as their father, Christ as their brother, and the spirit as their advocate. And you now bear that name in your life with all sobriety so that you might walk in newness of life. You are no longer one who belongs to yourself or belongs to this world, but there has been something that shows visibly to this world that you are a marked individual named by the triune God. Baptism has so much vibrant meaning to it, and it pictures to us that wonderful gospel that washes away our sins and adopts us into the family of God. What can wash away your sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you go to be baptized, that is pictured for the world to see and to know that you belong to him and to his Father, and you have his Spirit. Let's pray. Father, you have 
given our church such a wonderful picture of what you have done for us in the gospel to rescue us from our sins. I praise you for this picture. Help us, Lord, to use it rightly, to administer it rightly. Father, I pray that as those in this room who have been saved by your grace and know the joy of being identified with Christ in both his death and his resurrection. Help us to walk in that newness of life that you've given us. Help us to walk understanding that we live by your name. Help us this week to display that and not to walk in the ways of the world any longer, but to follow Christ Jesus. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.